0: Actually, for me, I, I think I need to change my major. Uh, it could be when you get older, you have some friends, and maybe you, and you get a job, and you're so excited about your new job. I can't wait to work at my new job, and maybe for a couple of weeks, it's great, but then you just kind of get bored with it. So this is not what it's cracked up to be. It's not what I thought it was going to be. High expectations and an experience of letdown. And this, pretty, this is a pretty amazing example, too, isn't it? Tom Brady. I mean, how can you win three Super Bowls, the biggest sporting event in the history of the entire world, and you win it three times, and you still look at yourself and you go, isn't there more to life? Like, don't you kind of hear that and go, what's the matter with this guy? Uh, But the reality is that sometimes life is kind of filled with this series of high expectations, And maybe it feels like you reach those expectations, but they never last. And so you've got to build more and more and more. There's actually an example in the Bible of this. There's a guy named King Solomon. King Solomon has everything. He's got a lot of girlfriends, a lot of wives, a lot of money, a lot of power. I mean, he's got anything he wants, he can have it. Well, he wrote, maybe. He might not have wrote this book, but... Let's just pretend that he did. Ecclesiastes. He writes Ecclesiastes, or some rich king does, and he writes it, and he says he's experienced all the pleasure of the world. I've got all the power. I've got all the money. I've got all the romance. And what's his message to all of that? Does anybody know? It's meaningless. Yeah. Meaningless. He says it's vanity. Basically, all this stuff that we're chasing after, Okay, we're actually just chasing after the wind. It is an incredible waste of time. Alexander the Great, great conqueror, is quoted in his bedroom crying, saying, I have no more worlds to conquer. Right? There's just this, I just, there's something more out there. Well, there's this guy named Cyprian in the third century. Saint Cyprian. And he's got this friend named, I think, Diotones or something, somewhere, it doesn't matter. So he writes him a letter, best friend, write him a letter. And he says something, uh, basically saying, "I found joy, I found meaning, I found purpose. Here it is." So here's what he says: This seems like a very cheerful world when I view it from this garden under the shadow of these vines. Looks great. But if I climbed some great mountain and looked over everything, you know what I'd see? I would see thieves. I would see uh, pirates on the seas. I would see men murdered as entertainment in big amphitheaters, it really is a bad world. Yet, in the midst of it, I have found a quiet and holy people. They have discovered a joy which is a thousand times better than any pleasure of this sinful life. They're despised, and they're persecuted, and they don't even care. These people are... The Christians, and I am one of them. Something about Christianity, could it be true, actually gives us this joy and this contentment and this peace? What is it about the gospel that does this for humanity? It's interesting, in the book of Philippians, Philippi is a Roman city, and um, they've got everything they've got entertainment, they've got pleasure, they've got parties. Not unlike cities in our country, right? Like, we could go to Huntsville if we're bored and if we have money, and we could not be bored. Like, we could find something to do in Huntsville. And so Philippi is kind of like that. And yet, of all these things that there are to do in the city of Rome, and all these things that are due in the city of Philippi, who seems to be the person filled with most joy? And it seems like it possibly could be the Apostle Paul, which is really strange because he's writing this letter from prison. And so what is it about the gospel? What is it about the Christian faith that can fill us with this kind of joy? And so I would say one of the big answers to that question, maybe not the only answer, but one of the big answers is to live life, not just or not really at all for yourself, but to live it for God and to live it for other people. And one of the best ways we can do that is to encourage other people. And that is what Paul does in Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 8. How can we be an encouragement to other people? I want to start reading in chapter 1, verse 3. It will be on the screen if you don't have a Bible. Paul says this. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Always in every prayer of mine for you all, or as we might say, y'all, uh, prayer of mine for y'all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel until the first day until now. Verse six, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Verse 8, for God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Two ways that we can be a big encouragement to our family, to our friends, to our church. Number one, number one is tell them that you are thankful for them. In verses 3 through 5, what we see is Paul is telling the Philippians, I am so thankful for you. Now, verses 3 through 5 is actually just one sentence. One sentence. And he uses the words you or your three times. And one of the things that we see is Paul is very selfless. He's not focused on himself. He's focused on the Lord Jesus Christ. He's focused on the Philippian church and how much he loves them. When I was 17, I went through a period of pretty incredible depression. I won't go into all the detail, but I actually do remember thinking there's nothing I can do. I have no hope for the future. And so my life is meaningless and it is pointless. And so what's the point of continuing on? Now, I wasn't going to go and take my own life, but uh, I was at a pretty desperate state. And it kind of hit me. Well... If there's nothing I can do about my life, why don't I just live my life for other people? And so I just thought to myself, you know what I'll do? I'll I'll just try to make everybody else. I can't be happy, but I'll I'll try to serve and love other people. And I did that for a little while, and it's a funny thing. I started to be filled with more and more joy. I took a youth group to Memphis, Tennessee on a mission trip one time. A pretty rough part of Memphis, Tennessee. So two days before the mission trip... This girl in the youth group uh, calls me up. She said, "Icus, I don't think I need to go on this trip. I don't think God wants me to go. Uh, I've got this opportunity to go to the beach. And my friends are going. And it was this whole long conversation. I was like, "Uh uh-huh, cool, I understand, I understand. And she basically said if she does not go to the beach with her friends, that all of her friends are going to have really strong friendships. And she won't be a part of that. And these girls are really popular. And so if she doesn't go, she's not going to be as popular as she wants to be. And so why is she not wanting to go uh, to this mission trip? And why is she wanting to go to the beach? It's all kind of selfish desires, isn't it? I want to go for me so I can feel good about myself, so I can have fun, so I can feel popular, so I can feel important. I said, I totally understand what you're saying. Friendship is really important to me. Show me your friends. I'll show you your future. You've heard me say that a thousand times. So if you feel like you need to go and do that, man, uh, no judgment. Here, you go to the beach with your friends, but I want to ask you to do one thing. This is what I always do. I might do this to one of you one day. I said, I think I have done it to one or two of you already. I said, don't give me an answer right now. I want you to pray about it one more night. And so, can you promise me to do that? She said, yes. And I said, now the second thing I need to tell you is two days before we leave. So you need to talk to your parents. And if you decide not to go, there's no way we can give you a refund. It's too late. It's too late. We can't give you a refund. Anyways, she ends up going on the mission trip with us. I don't know if the Lord told her to or if her parents made her go. Probably number two. But she goes on this trip, and for a couple days, I'm just kind of observing her, and she's all into it. She's loving all these children. She's meeting their families, and she's just laughing, and she's just all into this mission trip. So two days in, I go to her, and I say, hey, you've been doing a great job, and I kind of just talked. And I said, "Um, hey, how is your friends down at the beach? Are they having a good time? Uh, Do you have any regrets about not going? She said, do what? I said, you know, your friends, they're down at the beach. And she looks up and she goes, oh, I forgot about that. Yeah, I guess I should call them. She was so involved in serving other people and loving other people that she began to be filled with joy. And this trip became very fulfilling for her. And so I'm just giving you that example. Uh, I just really believe living a life of selflessness is the best way to live life. And now the uh, motivation for this is not... I want to be filled with joy, so I'm going to live for other people. Uh, the motivation for this is that actually is what Jesus has done for you and what he's done for me. He was selfless, and he died on the cross for your sin and my sin. And, uh, you know, I could show you a lot of scripture. Nobody is more happy and, or more filled with joy uh, than God himself. And so because he has loved us like that, out of that, we can begin to love and serve God and other people. The other thing I notice in verses 3 through 5, it says when he prays for them, he prays with joy. He is filled with joy. And again, that's just kind of a strange thing to say, isn't it? Because where is he? Jail. He's in jail. Thank you. So he's in jail. And he says, I'm praying with joy. And if you read through the rest of the book, um, he just talks about joy and rejoicing over and over and over again. And the picture that we have is that his joy is not dependent on his circumstances. His joy is dependent on an unchanging relationship with Jesus Christ. His joy is not dependent on his circumstances, on being in jail, on being separate from his church family. His joy is dependent on his unchanging relationship with Jesus Christ. Have you ever had a friend in your life, and they kind of know you're struggling with something, and they say, I just want you to know it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Now, if this is a person you don't know that well or you don't really have a trust with them and they say it's going to be okay, you're kind of like, how do you know? How do you know it's going to be okay? You don't know it's going to be okay. But if you have this sweet friend in your life or maybe a sweet uncle or just an awesome grandmother that you just trust and you know that their words are, they just bring comfort in your life and they say, I just want you to know things are going to be okay in a similar way paul is so um in love with christ and he feels christ loves so much within him that that is what he depends on for his joy and despite being in jail and people trying to stone him to death and people arresting him and people kicking him out of cities he's filled with joy because he serves a god who's in control of everything and he knows everything's going to be okay if you're here tonight and you're saying, my life is out of control. I don't know how stuff's going to work out. I think the scripture speaks to you tonight and says, hey, you can be, still be filled with joy. And, uh, and you have an unchanging relationship with God who is in control of everything. Not only that, but Jesus has actually already met your deepest need anyway. Our deepest need is sin and forgiveness. Jesus has already taken care of your greatest problem through his cross and through his resurrection. Another couple words in this passage of scripture, he says, you are partners with me and you are partakers of the gospel. And this word is fellowship. Now, you may have heard the word fellowship before. Sometimes we say we're going to have a little fellowship at church. What does that mean? We're going to get together and... Eat food. We're gonna eat food. We had a little had a little fellowship, have a little picnic together, we're in a fellowship together. And uh, that is what it is, but it's actually much, much deeper than that. The Greek word is koinonia. Everybody say koinonia. Koinonia. Pretty good. Alright, here's what that means. It is a self sacrificing conformity to a shared vision. A self sacrificing conformity to a shared vision. It's kind of like if and when you get a job. I used to work at Lenny's Sub Shop. You ever been to Lenny's Sub Shop? It's it's pretty good. They sell subs. They sell subs. And so I was the cook. I was a cook. I was cooking the chicken and the steaks and stuff like that. And, um, you know, after you work at a place for a little while, you get to know your coworkers. And there's kind of this fellowship that takes place. Because there's nobody else in the world that knows what it's like to work at Lenny's sub shop except for people that work at Lenny's sub shop. And so we kind of had this, I don't know, empathy for one another. Now, I think that about that and then I compare it with our relationship with the customers. And we like customers. They give us money and we give them sandwiches and we're nice to them. And that's pretty much, that's pretty much it. But I don't have really fellowship with customers, right? I've got this fellowship with my co-workers. In the church, Paul looks at the Philippian church and he says, we're together in this. And we have fellowship with one another. And as a student ministry, that's something that we might ought to seek after. And, and want to. we want our student ministry to look like that. Now, one of the ways you do that is we encourage each other. And we tell each other, hey, I just want you to know I'm thankful for you. And here's a reason why, or here's two reasons why. It's just such a powerful thing. Not only is it good for the person that you're encouraging, but it's actually good for your soul. It's the way that God has created us. Number two, not only should we tell people that we're thankful for them, but we should pray and think for them often. Pray for others and think for them often. Sometimes people say, hey, just want to let you know. I'm praying for you. And then it's like, are you really? Like, are you really praying for me? Uh, to really sit down and think about those that you love and really pray for them. And uh, it seems that Paul does this. Paul thinks of them often. He says that. I love this in verse number six. God will complete good work in you. God will, He started the work in the Philippian church. And he will complete it. Now the Philippian church has some conflict. They got a little church drama going on. And uh, we'll get more into that later. But one of the things he does. Is he wants to encourage them. And he says I know you got conflict. And you know, I know you got issues going on in the church. But God who began a good work in you. Is going to see it to completion. Sometimes we see this verse. And we talk about uh, salvation. And how you, once you're saved. You're always saved. You cannot lose your salvation. Right? When Zach was saying It was not, I might rise, I might rise. It was, I will rise. And the reason we can sing it like that, I should be a worship leader, shouldn't I? The reason we sing it like that is because of the certainty that we have in Christ. It is not dependent on you. It's not dependent on me. It's totally dependent on God. When he saves you, he saves you. And he will never leave you, and he'll never forsake you. The work that he starts in the church, he begins, and he will see it to completion. One theologian said it like this. Because this is really the perseverance of the saints. You know what the word perseverance means? Anybody? Do what? Savoring it? Not giving up is probably... That's that's close, but it's not giving up. You're playing football. It's the fourth quarter. You're exhausted. And you say, no, I'm going to persevere. And I'm going to play football really well. I don't know. And so, like, it's perseverance. You tough it out. Here's what he says. The perseverance of the saints rests on the perseverance of God with the saints. It is God who sustains us. And then the last thing is in verse 8, he mentions his affection for the Philippians. Now, this is interesting. Uh, The Greek word for affection refers to internal organs. And it actually refers specifically to your intestines. And so he's kind of saying, "I love you deep within my intestines," which is weird in 2019 in our American contest. Could you imagine being on a date and you know things are going great and you're in love, and you say, "I love you from the bottom of my intestines?" I mean that wouldn't go over very well. Uh, what What was the original thing that he said?: Affection. I have affection for the people. And it's deep within me. And it's kind of this picture of I love these people so much, it really kind of hurts on the inside. I just I love them that much. So the best example I could think of is I went, me and Amy went on a mission trip to Honduras. And uh, when we went, our daughter Emma was one year old. We were gone for an entire week. And I remember every day, it getting worse, how much I just wanted to see... Emma. We had never been away from her for that long. And every day it hurt more and more and more. The anticipation of getting home. I mean, I was happy to do the Lord's work. Don't get me wrong. But uh, I could not wait to see my daughter. I, I, I remember uh, being on my bed late at night and just like not weeping, but just like some tears. Just, I just want to see. I want to see my daughter so badly. It's this deep affection. And when Paul talks about The Philippian church he speaks of them with this kind of affection and I want you to know the reason he does that is because that is how God sees him and the same way that God sees him is the way that God sees each of you he loves you deeply there's a story I think it's in Luke 9 I can't remember but Jesus is healing all of these people you know and he's kind of exhausted and kind of worn out And the picture is him going up on this mountain and he looks at the crowds and the Bible says that Jesus had compassion on them. He just loved them so deeply. And so when we think about this idea of encouraging one another and encouraging other people, we receive encouragement from God and we take that encouragement and we show it to other people. Does that make sense? Through the gospel, we have fellowship with God Through Christ, also through the gospel, we know God's affection for us through the sacrifice of his own son. Have you received the good news of Jesus Christ? I'm going to ask Zach to come. Let's kind of lead us in one more song. So as he gets ready, I just want to tell you uh, why the gospel impacts the way we love people. Because it actually frees us to do this. What is the gospel? The gospel would say that we are all sinners, and all sinners have fallen short of the glory of God. And that the wages of sin is death. Because we are sinners, we deserve punishment, and that punishment is death and eternal separation from God forever. But God loves us so much that instead of punishing you, instead of punishing me, God punishes his own son in your place and in my place. And then he dies in your place. He comes back to life three days later, and he goes to heaven. He's seated at the right hand of God the Father. And so what must you do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? And the answer really is nothing. You don't have to do anything to be saved. All it is is receiving God's gift in faith. There's nothing you do to earn salvation. It is a gift from God to us. Now, the, the question after that is, okay, how can I stay a Christian? What do I need to do to keep God's salvation and His grace in me? And again, the answer is nothing. There's nothing that you have to do. Eikus, are you saying to me that I can go, you know, do some terrible sin tonight and all day tomorrow, and that... Um, And that I'll still be a Christian? I can just enjoy as much sin as I want and I'll still be a Christian? And the answer is yes. Because there's nothing that you can do that would cause him to leave you. He will always be here for you. He will never leave you. He'll never forsake you. So what is your reaction to that? One reaction might be, well, cool. I'm going to go and I'm going to enjoy lust and I'm going to be greedy and I'm going to be selfish and I'm going to be prideful because I know God's never going to leave me. But why would you do that? If you have experienced God's love in a real way, don't you want other people to experience that love? And the beauty of this is that now when you go out and you serve and love other people, it is not because you're trying to get God to love you or like you. When you go out and serve and love other people, it is not because you're trying to get other people to approve of you. The only reason we go out and we serve and love other people is because that's the way God has treated us. And it is the purest form of love. There is no more holy motivation to love God and to love people than the God. Let's all stand together.